welcome to Anchored, a podcast brought to you by The Word Unleashed, the preaching and teaching ministry of Tom Pennington. For more of Tom's content or to connect with us, visit our website at www.thewordunleashed.org. Now here's Tom exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. Those New Testament passages that link the Trinity together. And primarily, I want to look at two of them. The first one is Matthew chapter 3. This one is a serious problem for all those who reject the Trinity. Most of those in our day who reject the Trinity and who call themselves Christians are modalists. That is, they only believe there's one God in three different modes, wearing three different hats. And they would say this, well, you never find the three persons in the same place at the same time. And largely that's true until you get to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. Jesus is at his baptism. Verse 16 says, After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. So here you have the first person. Immediately he comes up from the water. And behold, right at that moment, he's still visible to everyone. The heavens were opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. So the Spirit of God takes the form, a form similar to that of a dove in some way, and lights on Christ. There you have the second person of the Trinity. At the same time, verse 17 says, Behold, a voice came out of the heavens and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Here at one moment in time, we have the three persons of the Trinity. The only way to come up with any different conclusion than the Trinity from that passage is kind of like that slapstick sort of humor where one person is trying to play several different roles and they kind of get tangled in themselves trying to change clothes and get to where they ought to be. You've seen those kind of humor productions where, where the person is trying to play several different roles and running here and then running there and That's what you have to see in those verses if there aren't three persons. One more I want you to see before we go tonight. Matthew 28. This one is the coup de grace, the issue of the Trinity. Matthew 28. As a prelude to the Great Commission, this is what we're going to look at. As a prelude to the Great Commission... God, Christ declared, rather, that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him. As a postlude, he declares that he'll be with his church, and he takes to himself the attributes of omniscience and omnipresence. And then he adds eternality because he says, I'll be with you always to the end of the age. So Christ is everywhere here claiming to be God. And in that context comes the commission itself. Notice the commission includes all nations... Verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, notice that baptismal formula, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I want you to first notice what it does not say. It does not say, into the names, plural, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Or the equivalent, it doesn't say, into the name of the Father, into the name of the Son, and into the name of the Spirit. 
If, you said, if it said either of those, you might think we had to deal with three separate beings. But it doesn't say that. Notice that neither does it say, into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In other words, omitting the recurring articles in the, in the text. Warfield writes, if it said that, it would be as if the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit might be taken as merely three designations of a single person. In other words, modalism. What does it say? Notice it carefully. Into the name, singular, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That formula asserts two things. Very important for you to understand this. First of all, it asserts the unity of the three persons of the, of the deity by combining them all within the bounds of a single name. The name, singular. One unity. One God. But then it throws the emphasis upon the distinctness of each of them by introducing them in turn with a repeated article. There's the name, one God. The name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Warfield puts it this way. Listen carefully to this, and I'll leave you on this note. He could not have been understood otherwise, talking about Christ, than as substituting for the name of Jehovah this other name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And this could not possibly have meant to his disciples anything else than that Jehovah was now to be known to them by this new name, the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The only alternative would have been that Jesus was supplanting Jehovah by a new God, something monstrous and unimaginable. There is no alternative, therefore, to understanding Jesus here except to be giving to his community a new name to Jehovah, and that new name is to be the threefold name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. In other words, we serve one God. That God was known and continues to be known by the name Yahweh. But Christ gave us a new name for Yahweh. And that is we are to know that one God in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The scripture is absolutely clear that our God exists in the person of Trinity. He is one in essence and three in persons. There's so many other things I could tell you here, and I'm not going to go through all of these because we're out of time, and I don't want to take another evening to do it. But I had other references I could show you, just so you know, um, to support the fact that the Trinity is linked, and also that they work together. The same attributes are applied to each of them. They're each said to have created. They're each said to have been involved in the Incarnation, Hebrews 9.14 says each of them were involved in the atonement. They were each involved in the resurrection and in salvation. Without question, the Trinity is a biblical doctrine. One God in three persons, eternally existing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What's the practical ramification of this? And I'm going to skip this and go to my last slide. What's the application for us? The Trinity is a pattern for our relationships. There is forever relationship within the Trinity. We find within the Trinity a pattern for our own. I encourage you to get Stuart Scott's book. Some of you men already have it. But there's a section on relationships in there in which he categorizes 
and gives verses for all of these things I'm listing here, the relationship that occurs within the Trinity. It is a pattern for our own relationships with our wives, with each other. There is within the Trinity a willingness to deny self. There is honor and respect. There is submission to an order of authority. There is humility, unity. There is uniqueness of personhood, perfect communication, involvement and cooperation, a knowledge of the other persons, thankfulness, verbal expressions of love, visible expressions of love, truthfulness, trustworthiness, and utmost concern for God's glory. When you look at the interaction of the Trinity, this is what you find, and it serves as a perfect, pure pattern for our relationships with one another. Even as the persons of the Trinity relate to one another, so should we relate to each other. You can study these in detail, as I said, in Stuart Scott's book, The Exemplary Husband, under the chapter on relationships, where all of these are supported with verses. You can study it in more detail, and I would encourage you to do that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Anchored Podcast. If you'd like to access additional content from Tom, or if you're interested in partnering with The Word Unleashed, please visit our website at www.thewordunleashed.org and be sure to connect with us on social media. We look forward to studying God's Word together with you on the next episode of Anchor. Anchor.